Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature Grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. Come listen to us rip on Jeff Wadlow and Fantasy <laughs> Island. We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an on-air shout-out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for over two years. So there is something like 60 bonus episodes waiting for you guys if you yeah. haven't heard those, as well as uh, we've done somewhere between 10 and 15 bonus transmissions as yeah. well. We've been knocking we talk those about new out release like genre films, which is what Jamie was talking about there. We've been going ham on those with all this free time. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so if you haven't uh, made the jump yet, I would consider doing that. That's uh, patreon.com slash podcast. Um, and that's the one plug. The other plug, as always, Apple Podcasts. If you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the bottom there and uh, give us a good old rating and review. Uh, helps us cr- climb the ranks over there, and we appreciate that as well. But those are your plugs for the week. As always, I am your host, Josh Lewis, and joining me also, as always, is my co-host. Jamie Miller. Welcome back, guys. Welcome back to the quarantine zone. We are once yep. again calling in. Jamie and I have not seen each other in two months, at least. That's <laughs> <laughs> very but weird. But we are, we are keeping the spirit alive. That's right. Uh, we are podcasting through it, as they say. Um, <laughs> and we're still at it. We're still here. We're still watching films. I think uh, uh, two weeks ago would have been the last time... Uh, you guys, free listeners, would have heard from us, and we would have been talking about um, uh, Sherlock Holmes chasing down Jack the Ripper. <laughs> yeah. Double feature. Yeah, pretty which, much. Which, uh, both from 1979, we did uh, Nicholas Meyer's Time After Time, uh, which is actually H.G. Wells chasing, chasing down Jack the Ripper through time. Yeah. But, uh, and Nicholas real Meyer love was is, found in that movie. It's yes. amazing. <laughs> uh, Malcolm McDowell found his wife on the set of that film, and there is a romantic angle to that film that really works because of that. Yeah. Uh, and there's also we also paired it with uh, Murder by Decree, which, uh, unlike uh, Time After Time, which was just written and directed by a Sherlock Holmes author, this is a literal Sherlock Holmes uh, adaptation uh, by Canadian director Bob Clark behind yeah. uh, Black, Chris- Black Christmas and uh, Death Dream. And Baby Geniuses, which <laughs> definitely fits in with those other ones. Had to throw in Baby Geniuses, you son of exactly. a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we had a uh, special guest, Fung Le, on to uh, talk about those with us. It was a lot of fun. If you haven't heard that episode, that was two weeks ago. Uh, but uh, last week, for the patrons, uh, due to the recent passing of uh, sort of horror movie icon Stuart Gordon, 
we decided to do a follow-up episode to our Stuart Gordon episode that we did on the in the yeah. first year of the show, and we did uh, his sort of next most popular horror films, Dolls from 1987, uh, <laughs> which is uh, actually kind of insane and yeah. some of the scariest uh, doll horror I've actually ever seen. The stop-motion animation. Uh, at one point, there's a guy who turns into a punch doll. He yeah. goes from like a live-action person into a doll, and you see his uh, nose actually like elongate pop into out. Hit. Yeah, it's, oh, yeah, it's crazy. Oh. Stuart Gordon definitely uh, likes his body horror, and we also talked about. Uh, speaking of which, Castle Freak. Oh yeah. Which what is a movie, movie. a direct-to-video, uh, like, Italian horror, gothic horror film from 1995 that feels like it actually came out in 1983 because it's just so yeah. uh, grim and repulsive and uh, it's just a really nasty creature feature with some really gross violence and sexual violence in it. Yeah, um, it's insane. So, Stuart Gordon, uh, <laughs> R.I.P. Yeah, rest easy, buddy. You crazy, you, you, crazy guy. You, Absolute madman. <laughs> uh, so again, that episode is uh, patreon.com slash podcast for anyone who uh, hasn't listened to that one. Oh, and speaking of which, uh, I forgot to mention uh, the, the patrons for this week. Uh, so we should, we should yeah. do that. Um, all the people who made the jump this week, we're going to kind of rip through them here. We got uh, James Livingston, uh, Alex A., Lucian Young, uh, Zach uh, Litzkus, uh, Maximilian McKenzie, uh, Zoid Wheeler, and Aaron Hammond. Oh, Aaron made the jump this week. He's actually a mutual on Twitter as well. It's nice oh, to see awesome. him make the jump. Uh, and we we, sh- uh, we should also mention too. Nick Johnston made the big jump from five dollars to ten dollars this month to oh, join in you. on the special ten dollar uh, live viewing parties that we do once a month, where we watch just some absolute trash <laughs> together in a live chat with you guys. And uh, this month, uh, it should be noted, uh, pairs up with the episode we're going to do today and the episode we're going to do next week. We're going to be talking about Stone Cold from 1991, starring uh, NFL flameout Brian Bosworth. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and directed by uh, 80s stunt guy who did the stunts for movies such as Predator, uh, Craig R. Hell Baxley. Yeah. But uh, the production of that one should be noted. Uh, it was originally supposed to be uh, directed by uh, Bruce Malmuth, uh, right. who we are going to be talking about today. He was fired off of that movie. Um, <laughs> so there is the connection between those. But if you guys haven't seen Stone Cold from 1991, I would definitely recommend making the jump this month because uh, on May 30th, we are going to watch that live with you guys. And it is insane. Uh, I can't I can't wait to make Jamie watch it. Yeah, I'm stoked. But that being said, I think that will... Uh, wrap it up for all those introductory things. We are going to move on to the full episode here this week. We have a very special guest uh, joining us with a uh, unique double feature of two movies I legit had not heard of and I'm very yeah. excited to have now seen and heard of them because they are both incredibly underrated. But that guest is a uh, critic and historian and author of books on film, uh, Jason Bailey. Jason, how are you doing? Hey, guys. Uh, thank you for having me on. How's it going? Good. Thanks for coming. Oh, we're, do- we're yeah, doing yeah, good. Yeah. What, what what day are you on, Jason? Do you know? I've, no, I, I stopped counting after about 10. Uh, I'm not good with math. But, I mean, we went down. I'm in New York. So, I mean, we, we locked down at, um, 
I actually I remember I do remember the specific day we went down on March 13th because March 15th was my book deadline. That was the day <laughs> that I that I <laughs> sent over the manuscript to my most recent uh, uh, tome. So um, what what was supposed to be like a big sort of week of celebration afterwards was just kind of a week of like sitting around trying to homeschool my children and figure <laughs> out what the fuck the future is. That was that was so yeah that was two months ago. So yeah we've I've I've gone out about once a week uh, for about an hour for two months now. Amazing. Uh, yep. Yeah. In the same boat with you there, just for the groceries, man. Yep. Yep. For survival. <laughs> Yep. But uh, Jason, as the show goes, we have the guests bring on the double feature with them. So mm-hmm. uh, what two films have you brought on with you this week and why do they pair together? The two films in question, pals, are uh, the aforementioned Bruce Malmuth's Nighthawks and Robert Butler's Night of the Juggler. Nighthawks from 81, Night of the Juggler from 1980. Uh, the, the, the pairing here uh, is New York 1980s sleazy cop movies. Um, and the reason specifically that this happened was basically when Josh put out the call for guests, um, it was when I was on the eighties chapter of the aforementioned book. Um, and I had just seen as part of the sort of sleaze eighties section of my research, these two films. And I just, I, I, I enjoyed them both. I, I thought they, they worked together in really interesting ways and uh, thought that they were worth bringing to your attention. So, so here we are. Well, we are very excited to have someone who has done uh, the 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 proper research <laughs> for these ones because Definitely. normally, I, normally I go through and I go down the rabbit hole and I look up as much writing as I can on these films, especially from the time if I can. Mm-hmm. And man, finding anything on Night of the Juggler, oh, w- was an just an absolute strain. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, or finding no. the film itself. <laughs> yeah, no, we yeah. should mention that to listen, like right off the bat, like you, you will not find, you know, a, a snazzy Arrow Blu-ray of Night of the Juggler. You will not find it on Amazon Prime. You have to go to YouTube and watch like a shitty VHS rip of this for, <laughs> because somehow, even though it was a major studio release, Columbia put this movie out in 1980. It has been entirely forgotten by time. It, as far as yeah. I can tell, was released on VHS in the 80s, plays, played cable and still does occasionally because actually uh, there's a more recent version on VHS that just or on uh, YouTube that just popped up a couple months ago that has an on has an in-frame burn-in for Action Max for the Cinemax uh, Action channel. <laughs> uh, so it occasionally airs on television and it was released on VHS, but as far as I can tell, never released here or internationally on DVD or Blu-ray. Wow. Um, you have God to damn. go to YouTube to and, and sort of peer through the gauze of, of that kind of, of, of uh, pixelation uh, to watch it. Um, Nighthawks has been treated much better. It was released on DVD and, and fairly recently in, in a good Blu-ray from, uh, from Shout Select. Um, but neither of them are really thought of as sort of canonical 80s, you know, New York movies or cop movies. Um, but there's Which a lot of Which is pretty nuts considering yeah. the cast on Nighthawks. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. well, and, and I mean, and one of the things that I think is particularly interesting about Nighthawks is that, first of all, we should mention, if you haven't heard of it, the the main, this is Sylvester Stallone versus Rutger Hauer. Like that's, <laughs> that's the cover art. That's Hell sort yeah. of the takeaway with, yeah. you know, with Billy D. Williams and, you know, Joe Spinell, the patron saint of NYC sleaze. 
um, in major supporting roles. One of the things I think is really interesting about Nighthawks as a Stallone movie is that it's from this sort of this really interesting era of almost a decade where he wasn't a caricature yet and where his career choices were not predictable or cliche yet you know you you have like rocky came out in 76 and there's a solid nine years or so there where he's not there's the occasional rocky sequel but he's also doing other strange interesting sort of unpredictable things like paradise alley is not a typical stallone movie nor is fist nor is victory Mm. um but these and and frankly nor nor is nighthawks he had never played a cop before nighthawks we, we we actually talked about him not too long ago in Death Race two thousand. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I recently watched him in a movie called uh, uh, Lockup, I believe, where he plays mm-hmm. uh, a prisoner and Donald Sutherland is the the warden. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and it's actually it ended up being uh, more dramatic than I thought it was going to be because I was expecting yeah. more of an action flick with uh, Stallone, and it ended up being a lot of character stuff. Well, that's the, and that's the thing we even forget about the first Rocky is there's like seven minutes of boxing at the very yeah, end. Yeah. Of the first Rocky, and up until then, it's a very '70s style character drama. You know, about about 1985 was when he turned into a cliche. Like that was the year where that summer we had Rambo: First Blood Part Two, and that <laughs> Thanksgiving we had Rocky Four. And like from there on out, it was everything was either those characters or like direct, derivative, you know, direct ripoffs. Of those characters, like everything Cliffhanger, after that. Demolition yeah. Man. Yeah, no, no, it's like, you know, Cobra <laughs> is like, what if Rambo, but cop, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. And <laughs> Over the Top is like, what if Rocky, but arm wrestling? So, but... <laughs> I haven't this, seen Over the Top. I'm now going to prioritize oh, you. Yeah, over the top. hell it's yeah. It's deliciously terrible. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you should see Over the awesome. Top. Awesome. Um, well, we're, we're, well, we're very excited to talk about these two, but I think we're going to yeah. uh, jump right right into it here. Normally we go with kind of like the the more uh, the, the more popular one is usually what we go with first, or like A picture, B picture. But I kind of felt actually watching these two that it might make a little bit more sense to start with um, Night of the Juggler. Okay, only cool. because uh, you can sort of catch uh, in Night of the Juggler being a 1980 film, you can kind of catch the end of what was like a very kind of 70s style yep, film. For sure. And in Nighthawks, you kind of get a combination of that 70s style film <laughs> and the beginning of the very 1980s style film. So we yeah. actually kind of catch a little bit of the changing of the the era of action movies. So I actually think it makes sense to tackle these chronologically. So I think we're going to jump right into cool. it here. We are going to talk Night of the Juggler. The Saturday movie will continue after these messages. Daddy's little girl is missing. Where are you going to find her? Somebody took her. Somebody's gonna pay. You wanna see your kid alive again? Daddy will make sure of that. Daddy! You're giving me a million bucks, you'll never see your kid again. James Brolin, a broadcast premiere. Night of the Juggler. Sunday night at 6, only on Channel 11. All right, we are talking uh, Night of the Juggler, the 1980, uh, as said here, action neo noir thriller film starring. Uh, James Brolin. Uh, The film sort of loosely follows uh, an ex-New York City cop who, uh, uh, on a day where he is walking his daughter to school, uh, finds her 
randomly kidnapped and spends the next 90 minutes uh, running <laughs> across the grimy New York cityscape and all kinds of gross venues. And he basically just punches a lot of people until he gets his daughter back. Yeah. And that, <laughs> you gotta do and what you gotta do. Is, Accurate. And it, it is amazing that that actually just is the movie for 90 straight minutes. It's James Brolin sweating around town in his plaid shirt and his beard. Yeah. Uh, I wanted straight, to straight out of Amityville horror in his sort of like uh, lumberjack look that he's got. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, he's a trucker. You should mention he's a trucker. And the first time we see yes. him, he's driving a truck in a trucker hat. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And he's and he's picking up his paycheck. Yes, sir. And Working I also man. love the uh, the the poster, like just having James Brolin, it, like the one at least on uh, Letterbox, is just him ripping open a picture of New York, you know, just tearing <laughs> yes, it he's apart. He's literally tearing this. Yeah, apart. and then of course yeah. they have the uh, the tagline "In the heart of every victim is a hero," and he'll tear apart a city to prove it. And I just love that image and the and the tagline. It's a great little intro. Absolutely. I also love the fact that you mentioned the uh, the you know the the kidnapping the 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 event that sort of sets everything into motion in true New York City fashion. Like no one blinks an eye as a tween <laughs> is like dragged screaming from Central Park into yeah, a car. There's, there's people everywhere. Street. Like people everywhere, and he's like the only one who notices because it's like, hey, I recognize that voice. Yeah, he goes. <laughs> Everyone else is like, I got, I got work to do. I, I got to move yeah. on with my day here. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that first, I think, shout out especially to that first chase that immediately happens right then is like a really great harrowing, you know, city chasing, extended multi-vehicle foot chase through several like neighborhoods. <laughs> we got crunching cars, he's smashing windows, they're dragging stuntmen. Like it's a really good urban chase scene. And like, yeah, I, I had a question for, for you actually. High. Was this, yeah. was, was this shot gorilla style? Like Larry Cohen style? Because no, like no, yeah. the, the, lo- mean, the location work in this is like absolutely like insane. And the fact that they were able to do a lot of what they were doing here, because that you're right, that, that chase scene like it, it starts off as a foot chase and then it's a car chase and then they crash those cars and it has like James Brolin like at one point hanging out of his car has all yeah. kinds of crazy stuff they're doing. Then they take it into the subway and they go underground and like James Brolin is like knocking over like like cops and shit like that. Try and, and like I guess more like traffic cops. And every uh, scene is just filled with people. So I th- actually thought it was guerrilla style too, at least for like half of it or so. Well, you can almost feel like you're watching people in the sidelines being like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> yeah, like, right, people are right. so intense and they're so after each other. And then they get out of the subway and they steal like another car and they start the car chase again. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a killer sequence. I mean, the thing, the, the answer, no, it's, I mean, it's a Columbia, it was a Columbia Pictures production. It was, they, they cleared, they, you know, they, I, there's always some chance of sort of like grabbing stuff the way that say French Connection did but the thing to to sort of bear in mind and I'll try not to go off on on my whole thesis of the book here but the the thing to to bear in mind when you're watching New York cinema of the 70s and 80s especially is that up until 1965 hardly any films were shot in majority on location in New York City it was too hard there was there were the 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 red tape was impossible uh, to get past, there were they required so many different permits and all. You know, it was just an impossible process. It was not, even though 
cinema, American cinema basically started in New York. It migrated to California in the 1920s or 19, late teens and didn't come back. 1965 was when the new mayor, John Lindsay, signs this executive order to establish the mayor's office of, you know, a film TV broadcasting and bring cinema back to New York. And basically doing that created a one-stop shop where you just had to go and get a signature on one permit. They provided assistance. They provided tax breaks. They provided cops to help you with your shoot. Like it was a real major initiative to make New York filmmaking a thing again. Well, yeah, that That's that awesome. one I I sort of remember because that uh, what was the Larry Cohen one that we did that had the giant cop parade that he shot in? Oh, uh, remember, uh, was, uh, was, God told was me it, to. Was it God told me to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember watching that, and that was like the first time when I was watching like a seventies New York movie. I was like, how the hell? Yeah, yeah. Did they shoot that <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. for real? It was a it was a major effort, you know, across the board to to bring movies and bring movie jobs and bring you know movie income into the city. What's funny about it is this also happened at the same time the city itself was going into the toilet in terms of <laughs> bankruptcies and social services and str- I mean like it was the this the era the the city's worst era and it was all captured on film thanks to the <laughs> efforts of the city government. Like all of the great trashy New York movies that you think of you're taking of well Pelham 123s Taxi Drivers all of the none of those would have been shot in New York City were it not for the efforts of the mayor's office in the mid 60s right when everything else was going to shit yeah and, and meanwhile filmmakers had the most filthy backdrops imaginable Absolutely. covered in graffiti and dirt and, yeah. just and also at the same time that the rating system had changed, had changed so they could fully dramatize all of the sordidness of the city, you know, they they had that new freedom of the RNX ratings to really mm. make them filthy, and they did. So when you see, yeah, like a giant, you know, chase like that, like the one at the beginning of Night of the Juggler, like that was, I'm sure, quite quite well coordinated between city offices and between the filmmakers, and they they I'm sure did all of their permits, and yeah, that's I mean that was that was what that office existed to do was to make a sequence like that possible. It's amazing. Well, and, and it, it 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 works so well for the film. The fact that they let them do stuff like that, just because it like on screen, it looks so populated and yeah. chaotic, mm-hmm. um, which is like a huge part of what I think makes this this film work. Because there is a real sense of activity and life to the street. Yeah, every side character he comes across, even if they have a second of screen time, they're like a, a whole person with a whole other world happening. Yeah. Which 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 kind of makes this film and and for me a huge reason that I liked it is that you realize that James Brolin his character is just one person having another goddamn day in New York, as someone says in this film at one point. Uh, so so you, you realize that there's probably so many James Brolins happening around here. And that's like the genius of this movie is that even though it's so intimate and closed in a lot to his perspective, there are some uh, subplots that do with sort of like a rich family and sort of like the police commissioner and some other aspects to the film there. But a lot of this film is really locked in with James Brolin who's literally tearing this city apart, fighting his way through all these filthy venues to on, on a uh, very single-minded vi- um, mission of getting his daughter back. And you, on that journey, there is just so much life that he comes across yeah. as he's doing that. Like, even in that chase scene, when he, I love when he tries to, uh, the kidnapper 
drives away and he like goes around the giant traffic jam by driving like through the park and mm-hmm. he tries to like hijack a taxi like you would see in an action movie like a guy comes over he's like I need your car I, I'm in an important chase scene I gotta do this and there's such a unique twist on this scene where the taxi driver's like hey that guy stole your daughter he's like well get on it man I'll take you yes. and, yeah. then, <laughs> so and, and then so the taxi driver drives him around and he starts telling him a story about how he drove like the Puerto Rican 500 yeah. where you have yeah. to like steal a car and stuff <laughs> and and again there's just it's such a unique little thing that I feel like would only come out of like a New York movie like yeah. this there's yeah. another part too where I think it's it's I think it might be even the same uh, chase sequence uh, where he is in another car and uh, he takes uh, like a preacher's car or whatever <laughs> and, the, yeah. and the preacher is just like praying for dear life as he's just swerving in and out of traffic it's yeah. it's uh there's actually a lot of uh of comedy in in this uh written, mm-hmm. like even though it still holds true to like the grime and the violence and all that there is a lot of moments that actually are kind of more i don't know if you would say lighthearted, but at least comedic well, it, 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 it feels like it's just like there is a a whole lot of real people yeah very tightly uh, sort of squished together and yeah. it feels like the movie goes out of its way to like get you to feel like claustrophobic a little bit in that way but also in 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 its own sort of way it's also kind of like a romantic depiction of New York at the same time for sure mm-hmm. where it's like I mean there there is that bit where like James Brolin like straight up says why would I want to go live in a rich house in Connecticut and I know that my daughter's kidnapped and she just got like picked up off the street <laughs> randomly <laughs> yeah. but like but that is, is so city. much better to me yeah. and so much less yeah, yeah, yeah. boring than like having money and living in Connecticut <laughs> right right well I think a big a big part of what you're talking about too is that you know it's also well cast with like a lot of really terrific some of them theatrical new york character actors i mean that that mm. cab driver that's mandy patinkin in one of his like first film roles um do you know what i don't even think i noticed that yeah yeah that's putting awesome. on like a, hev- wow. a heavy pr accent but yeah that's a that's a young mandy patinkin cliff gorman who's the guy who plays the kidnapper is like always a reassuring presence in New York movies, uh, always a little bit unhinged. He co-stars in a, in a really great uh, 70s New York comedy called Cops and Robbers, which is, I think, just finally starting to find an audience. It got a, a KL Studio Classics Blu-ray release a few years back, and people are finally starting to, to sort of discover that movie. Um, and then, of course, Richard uh, Castellano from The Godfather as, as Lieutenant Tonelli. Of course. Um, with, you know, a terrific little character role there. So, yeah, I think a, or, a, a huge... Oh, sorry, uh, go ahead. I was just going to say, also, uh, I think, unless you guys mentioned him, uh, Dan uh, Hedia, I believe. That's what oh, I was going to say, too. My God. His scenes are unbelievable, man. He's Unhinged. just a madman of a cop. Like, yes. That one scene where he's chasing James Brolin, and he's just, just shooting a fucking shotgun, shotgun into the traffic of people, <laughs> and he's just like, his his only instruction is just like, get down. Just get down. You're going to be yes. all right. Don't worry about it. And I think there's even a cop that like comes up to him after and is like, you can't do that, dude. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Yeah, well, well, because, yeah, he's just a random guy firing a shotgun yeah. in the city streets of New York trying to kill James Brolin because he because he's a corrupt cop and, yeah. and James Brolin actually got 
you know, he quit the force because he actually, uh, he went to internal affairs and like ratted out a bunch of the corrupt cops, <laughs> which is why he's, he's no longer working for them. And that's why <laughs> Dan Hedaya is chasing him, yeah. uh, trying to like bring him in for doing, to be fair, he did do a giant Grand Theft Auto <laughs> sequence, <laughs> which we talked about at the beginning of the film, which Very is true. the giant chase sequence where he like knocks over traffic cops, steals cars. Yeah, and I think he punches shit, so. a cop in the stomach when he tries to arrest him at one point. So, I mean, there yeah. is grounds so, so, for chase. I just, you yeah, know, so obviously that's no why the cops are trying to take him in. People. <laughs> but yeah, Dan Hedaya's definitely has something personal against him and is why he's chasing him around town with, with the shotgun. <laughs> but yeah, when, when he's just firing that shotgun into open streets filled yeah. with civilians, and then the cop comes up to him to be like, who is this dude firing a shotgun right now? <laughs> dude, what and, is going and, on? and all he does is flash his badge. He's like, it's cool, I'm a cop. Yeah. And they're like, dude. <laughs> Don't worry, I've got the authority to do this. Yeah. Oh, God. Well, the, the thing that you mentioned about, um, you know, him ratting out and all that stuff, like, I, I have to, I'm glad to hear that you guys did like the film because I was, I, I loved it the first time I saw it, but I was a little worried that part of the reason I responded so much to it was because it is so, so steep in the real history of New York in the 1970s. And so I didn't know if it was just like, if my, my pleasure watching the movie was just like a real life version of, you know, the, the Leo once upon a time in Hollywood meme of me just like pointing it at the screen because they're like referencing real <laughs> events that I've like just been researching. But I think that's part of what makes the movie so effective is, uh, you know, aside from, you know, shotgun blasts on public streets, it is, it does sort of feel <laughs> rooted in a reality. And, and like I say, it's rooted in real stuff that was happening in the city. When they talk about ratting out, um, ratting out your fellow officers and all the corruption, I mean, the, you know, the NAP commission, report which was what serpico the that commission was who frank serpico the real frank serpico mm-hmm. testified in front of that was the big commission that investigated corruption in the new york city police department you know that was 1972 when that report came out uh 1975 they mentioned he he says oh what's the line he says uh, so when the city broke went broke and they laid off all those cops uh that gave him an excuse to get rid of you that was a real thing. That was 1975. That was the when the city went almost to bankruptcy. That was, you know, the, the famous headline of Ford to New York, drop dead. Um, mm. And Mayor A. Beam had to lay off a bunch, uh, you know, had to hugely slash the city budget, which meant laying off a bunch of cops. So that's a reference to a real event. Um, and then all mm. of the stuff with, uh, with Cliff Gorman in the South Bronx all the stuff he's talking about, about, about you know, the gentrification and stuff. Yes. About, mm-hmm. you know, uh, white, um, you know, real estate magnates like Fred Trump, um, buying up South Bronx properties cheap, uh, in a lot of cases, hiring locals to burn them down so that they could get people out and so they could collect insurance and they could later re- rebuild and resell. Like all of that stuff is rooted in what was actually happening in the South Bronx in the 19th century. There are entire books and documentaries about I was impressed that the uh, kidnapper here, played by Cliff Gorman, uh, he was able to diagnose the issue of gentrification, but from a point of view where it's all it's all the Puerto Ricans yes. and African American people's right. fault, yes, uh, and and it, and, it, and it was welfare's fault that yes. gentrification was a thing, yeah. which is really really funny. And now that you mention it, it is it is really interesting. So to someone in who would have seen this in New York in say 1980, like it's very likely they would have been familiar with oh, all with of this history, all of right? This stuff. And frankly, not even just in New York because you know New York is the media center. 
center. So a lot of these local stories about bankruptcy and, you know, and the Knapp Commission, all this in the 1970s were, were national news because they were reported to the rest of the country. So this is all fairly familiar stuff. This is like, you know, uh, movies a few years after 9-11 referencing 9-11. Not like that was just a New York event. People, this was all sort of part of the the, the common consciousness about New York City in the 1970s. Um, hmm. and, and then sort of the other thing that really jumped out at me was that the real rich, you know, the real target, we should mention, <laughs> Cliff Gorman, a ter- <laughs> terrible criminal, like really bad yeah. at his, like kidnaps the oh, wrong yeah. person with no clear plan, <laughs> just like hides in a building for some, makes, you know, makes these phone calls. I don't know what his plans are, whether that shit's really creepy. Anyway, the real rich guy, the real <laughs> estate guy who was his actual target. One scene that, that really leapt out at me was where he's, you know, when he's up in the lieutenant's face and says, I think I'm entitled to some consideration, da, 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 da. Um, a real reflection of how that type of businessman's power and position was elevated in the late 1970s in New York City. Mm-hmm. Because when the city went bankrupt, uh, the mayor had to turn over most of his budgeting power to this thing called the Municipal Assistance Corporation which was all these rich assholes, which was all like banking people and finance people and the city's rich people. And they were the ones who cut, who can, you know, who revised these budgets to cut all the social services and to basically build, you know, incentives in for, for corporations to try to, to try to bring them in to the city and that, that, you know, neoliberalism and was, was going to be what saved New York in the 1980s. So that dynamic was a very real one as well. Yeah, no, I, that that scene really leapt out of me because like the the larger plot here obviously is that Cliff kidnaps James Brolin's daughter because she's like wearing the same overalls as like bad as, criminal, like, bad criminal. Yeah, uh, yeah. So <laughs> so he, he, kid, he kidnaps James Brolin's daughter, thinking it is the daughter of like a rich uh, real estate dude in New York. Um, and then it's so funny when he like calls the mom and he's like a million bucks or chunks of meat. You got it. And the mom's just like, I don't, I, uh, she's like I'm looking talking. at her daughter who's sitting yeah, on the she's couch. Like looking at her being like, I don't understand what's exactly I mean, we're all going covered on here. here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he calls like multiple times being like, I've got the girl, I've got the girl. And they, and they try not to say anything because, uh, the, uh, police commissioner like does believe actually mm-hmm. that he does have a little girl and they don't want to reveal that he's got the wrong girl. Cause then obviously she becomes less valuable. He, he's more likely to do something with her. Um, and that scene with the, uh, real estate guy where he like requests that he personally tackle this case yeah. which at the moment is just creepy phone calls yes like he's not in any immediate danger of any kind no one he knows is in any immediate danger right. meanwhile and crime the, levels in the city are at like an all-time high yeah and he's sitting there going like look off. i would love to personally sit by your phone right now yeah but I've got five bomb threats this morning, and I have an actual kidnapped girl right. <laughs> uh, who I am now realizing is probably connected to James Brolin doing Grand Theft Auto in my city. <laughs> it's all starting to connect. Yeah, yeah and, and, and the line that he says is, I pay more taxes to the city than your whole precinct. So I'm entitled to basically a, a, a hired police force and, and straight up threatens him. And the line that he says back is so telling where he goes, I deal with murderers, rapists, thieves, and creeps of all kinds. They don't scare me. You scare me. Yeah. 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 Which is just line. like a really like uh, like moody line that kind of appears in this. Uh, because again, other than these these sort of 
subplots which kind of clarify some of the frustrations and dynamics of living in the city. The the rest of this is really like James Brolin Bunch running into a peep show and like throwing the girls around scene. being like, does anyone know any information? And then the, <laughs> the bouncers coming in and like throwing him around. Dude, I love the way that the, that the dancers like, like kind of like fuck with him. Obviously I want him to get his answers, but like one of them <laughs> eventually says, uh, they're like, Oh, they took your girl. Poor baby. You'll find another one. So it's just yeah. like, you know, let's it's get like, you another girl. Yeah, here. And he's just on the phone and he talks to like yeah. four different dancers because they just keep hanging up on him. And, and he's just yeah. so it looks like he's about to break the glass. It's it's an incredible sequence. Yeah. Pete Booth's not ideal for interrogation, turns out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Great sequence. Not so. ideal. Yeah. <laughs> oh, another so do- another shot I wanted to just mention uh, briefly was the the intro. Uh, that I really liked because I think mm-hmm. it's I believe it's it's uh, Cliff at a restaurant, mm-hmm. uh, correct? Yep. Uh, Cl- and yep. and I love that it's like he uh, he makes that that smiley face with his um with his, his breakfast, breakfast. <laughs> and and then it seems like the whole time it keeps cutting back from the smiley face to him, and he just looks c- completely distraught, uh, totally emotionless, like just like the just a dead man, and mm-hmm. uh, and then. Just to add the ketchup, just to it's it's such a dirty looking like yeah. like thing when he starts to add it, and then to stab the smiley face with the ketchup, it's such a great opening to, and it's very ambiguous. Like you don't really know what's going on. You don't even know if this guy is going to be a part of the story, but it just sets a tone so perfectly, and, uh, well, and I loved it. And I was gonna I was gonna say one thing about like the first like couple minutes, like right right after that, is that it's it's very quiet. And there's mm. very little dialogue other mm-hmm. than um, James Brolin picking up his paycheck and then talking to his daughter and sort of establishing his sort of back and forth as kind of like a sort of like a it, it sounds like sort of newly single dad living yep. with his daughter in New York who wants to live with him. Um, and it's cross cut of his just like, you know, very sort of home life interactions with Cliff doing whatever he's doing in the subways and the sewers, gearing up for something, hijacking a car, making his plans, which again, he's very, we find out he's very terrible at, but he's doing something. He's got mm-hmm. some, he's got some ideas, uh, about how the city is going to look soon. Um, and it's very sort of, again, set up without like any kind of exposition. And he kidnaps that daughter. He starts to like, what is literally like a, a 10 to 15 minute long chase sequence. And then the rest of the movie, James Brolin running around town and the dynamics with sort of like the police and the real estate guy um, and obviously how that interacts too with with James Brolin, like the corrupt cops like chasing him through town because the cops are both after him and after the kidnapper right. at the same time. But they seem more interested in in getting him at that moment, which is why he's yeah. interested in not doing any part of them. Like he, he evades the cops and just like runs out of the, uh, like he just beats the shit out of uh, <laughs> the one guy at one point and runs out of the precinct and like no one stops him. Yeah. And they even ask him at one point, like, you know, shouldn't you get the police involved if your daughter's kidnapped? And he's just like, I'd rather honestly do it myself, partially because I think that I've seen how corrupt and inept they are. Oh, totally. And also because I, I just personally yeah. am excited and kind of want the revenge myself. Right. Yeah, there's definitely right. that aspect to it, for sure. But it, but it's so amazing that the film just has so little information that's not doled out like in the moment, on the run. Right. Yeah, this is a movie where like James Brolin has no past. chance to breathe or anything. It just moves. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's got a great energy to it. 
The um, I think it. I did a little bit of, of poking around at the back. It's got an interesting backstory in terms of personnel because it was the original director was Sidney J. Fury, um, who's a, a good you know a solid journeyman director. Some good films, some bad, but had you know some some sort of action exploitation background occasionally. Like he did a really really great underseen movie in like the early seventies called Hit with uh, Billy D. Williams of Nighthawks. And um, nice. and Richard Pryor um, in a supporting role, um, and he had also directed both of them previously in Lady Sings the Blues, which is a very different kind of movie, but but also good. Um, what oh, I oh man, he did Iron Eagle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, went some places. No, he went some interesting places in the eighties. Um, Amazing. But he uh, apparently they shot for like I think twenty days, twenty three days, and then James Brolin injured himself, like broke his foot or something, in, in one of the chase scenes. And they had to honestly take, really was sense. going hard, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and they they had to like shut down production for a period, and in that period, he left the movie, and there was a lawsuit and a whole whole thing. <clears throat> the director who came on to finish it, and the one who is credited in the movie, this guy Robert Butler. If you go look at his IMDb, it is insane. There is nothing remotely like this anywhere in his CV before this movie. Like he did a lot of TV and a whole lot of those bad, like seventies Disney live action movies, like young Kurt yeah, Russell. I, movies. I saw that he did uh, the computer wore yeah. tennis shoes. Yeah. And like now you see him now you don't. And like Don Knotts in hot lead and cold feet. I mean like these <laughs> nothing. And like, I have no idea how they spun a wheel and this guy ended up in charge of this movie. Cause there's not a thing on that resume that says, urban cop kidnap thriller like nothing <laughs> um but he, he performed i think a huge part of the film's success technically is because of the director of photography the dp's victor j kemper who shot dog day afternoon and eyes of laura Mars oh my god and yeah Husbands there it is the hospital and a lot of great 70s new york oh movies. and he shot mikey and nikki as well yeah 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 i mean urban new urban 70s movies in general he was really good at but those were like the sort of the, the crux of his new york filmography to that point and obviously he knew how to like yeah we we did an we did an episode with producer keith calder on uh, dog day afternoon and taking a pelham one two three and that that honestly is what i was reminded most watching both of these films absolutely whereas like like those were just very sweaty grimy mm-hmm. street level new york films and like these feel kind of like coming near the the tail end of that trend yeah. like night of the juggler coming out in 1980 like clearly it was yeah. made in the in, in the late 70s but like by the time you hit the early 80s like it does feel like this kind of movie was starting to kind of go by the wayside a little bit and people wanted more bigger more cartoony things they wanted the stuff that stallone eventually popularized right. in the early 80s right right um, well what you over see something in, like this right well what you see in terms of new york movies in the 80s is is just that that this kind of sleaze um, these kinds of stories, you're right, were not being made on a studio level anymore. These tended in, we sort of moved more into an era of the urban exploitation movie, the canon movie, the sort of like, you know, um, yeah. the... Uh, Missing in action. <laughs> right, but in terms of New York especially, like things like Fear City or um, okay. The Executioner, you know, those sorts of like, of of really 
more exploitation. Oh, is that driven. is that is that Abel Ferrer's Fear City? Yes, yes. Ah, okay. I actually I actually did watch that recently. Yeah. I didn't. I do you know what? I don't know that I realized that that was in New York. But oh, it's Abel Ferrer though. I should have known. Very Times yeah. Square, like very much a snapshot of mm. Times Square, circa eighty three, eighty four. I'll be honest. So, I, I think I, I think I was distracted by the like sword wielding uh, psychos in that yeah. one. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and also things like you know Maniac and Basket Case and those sort of like herb, you know, sort of sleazy urban oh, horror. Right which are also, you know, sort of Times Square adjacent, you know, that that's more sort of the portraiture that we saw of this side of the city in that mm. in that coming decade. Yeah, no, for sure. Maniacs, uh, quite, quite an interesting <laughs> one, too. I mean, the Tom Savini makeup in that film is just yeah. goddamn unbelievable. Yeah. And uh, once again, Night of the Juggler doesn't quite go that far with with anything in it in its violence. Um, but I will say that, like, I think what ends up really working for me about Night of the Juggler is just capturing a very specific kind of, I don't even know that it's necessarily a psychological headspace because it's more of like a collective headspace of, of the city. There is like this, this feeling of like grit and danger and desperation to it as Josh Brolin, which is just, you know, and it's easy to get into that when, you know, the desperation is a father literally running through a filthy city looking for his daughter who is kidnapped by this insanely bigoted creep who is also like maybe a pedophile. Yep. I, I, yeah, I wasn't sure if that, that, that aspect kind of gets thrown a in a little bit near the sad end. sad character. <laughs> like, yeah. good lord. But, but like the like the joy of the film, despite the fact that I don't know that it has an action scene that quite matches the, or even like, uh, you know, hits the intensity of that like 15 minute chase that kind of opens the film mm-hmm. yeah. is overall just a structure, almost an odyssey structure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just James Brolin <laughs> running through New York. There's all these like dilapidated textures. And then you start throwing in some of the class frustrations and institutional corruption. Yep. And you start throwing in the sleazy venues and the urban grit and everything to it. And you, throw all of those together into just a very lean uh, story of a guy on a very single-minded mission. Yep. And it just, I don't know, it just, it really moves and works for me, despite the fact that I, I don't know that I would say that there's, like, an amazing set piece that really stands out. Like, say, when we talk about something like 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 Nighthawks, there's some real big moments in that. Right. Uh, and this this doesn't quite have that, but for some reason, the overall thing yeah. just really works for me. Like, just like the, the, the sleaze and the crumbling brick and the stuffiness of it. Uh, yeah. It's just like a really, really ferocious little uh, like thriller film. And yeah, I, I, I got a lot out of, out, out of it and pivoting, you know, a little bit to reductive rating round and final statements like this one does get like a, a solid to almost a high four for me, honestly. Like I, I think that weirdly enough, despite the fact that as Jason was pointing out that like this was a time when there was more cameras on New York streets than ever and New York streets never looked worse, that this is somehow <laughs> still an unbelievably like romantic mm-hmm. and uh, a total blast uh, to watch. Yeah. So it, it, it's an absolute shame that you can only catch this on a crappy VHS rip on, on YouTube, because I feel like 
I would honestly like it even more if I could see more of that sewer finale, which looks like it's very beautifully shot. Right. You just can't <laughs> yeah. make much of it on VHS, <laughs> I'll be honest with you. Yeah, right. a little bit of the, the VHS quality kind of, I, I enjoyed just based on the, the grime and dirt that the movie was 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 giving off. But <laughs> at the same time, I def, there were definitely scenes where I was like, this is really dark. I can't see a damn thing right now. Um, and I'm also in the same boat. I think I'm going to give it that four too. It's it's just a, it's one of the most New York movies that I've ever seen, and uh, I wanted to give a quick shout out to the writers. I didn't even uh, look up who wrote it, but uh, William P. McGurvin uh, wrote uh, The Big Heat, apparently, which is which is pretty awesome because we were big fans of that one, and uh, William mm-hmm. W. Oh, Norton also did uh, White Lightning and Gator, mm-hmm. which is just. Oh hell yeah! Yeah, so we have. Do you know what? uh, Do you know what? White Lightning honestly isn't a bad movie. Honestly, this feels like New York, a little bit of New York's (laughs) White Lightning version of something like that. Like just very sweaty. Yep. uh, Yeah, I know a dude on a mission. Lots of like real cars and real uh, fist fights through all these different locations and stuff. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, and I just I loved watching uh, James Brolin just yeah literally tear apart this city to get to his daughter. It was it was incredible and. Cliff uh, Gorman gives just an absolutely sad and uh, pretty pathetic performance in a in a totally complimentary way, uh, and uh, and then we got that that Dan Hedia um, performance, Some which plot, and especially yeah. just that one scene once again when he's just shooting into the into the, the public. Just to that try was to definitely get the scene rolling. where I was like yelling "what" at the screen. Oh yeah, man! It was that's totally unhinged craziness. So uh, yeah. I, I I loved it. I thought this was and, great. And props to James Brolin who eventually feeds his face to a dog. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> he like dangles <laughs> him over a fence or something. Yeah, it's crazy. Oh man, yeah. So four out of five for me. Yeah, awesome. it's a trio of fours. Honestly, um, this this you know when you when you're setting out to write a, a film history book and, and sort of mulling over ideas, you do think a lot about, okay, well, what movies do I want to spend the next year or two, maybe three of my life watching? Um, and it, for me, it always comes down to, okay, is it something where I'm going to do a combination of movies I love that I now have an excuse to revisit and write about, um, movies I've always heard are good and, and now I have an excuse to go watch, and movies I'm going to discover that I've never heard of just through the course of the research. And Night of the Juggler was the third. It was one I had never heard of before I, I started working on this project. It came up, I think, just in a Twitter thread somewhere, and so I tracked it down. And yeah, like, knocked me out. Clean knocked me out. And and the yeah. fact that it's so obscure and that so few people have seen it when it should be discussed in the company of some of the, you know, the great sort of grimy New York movies is a shame. I, all I hope is that one day whoever like licenses stuff for you know for KL uh, or Shout Select or like one of the, one of the boutique companies sees this movie and recognizes that if people saw it, they would really dig it. Yeah, I hope so. Hell yeah! I mean, we are we are happy to shine some light on yeah. it here and get some more people talking about it. And we hope. I mean, I'm going to be yelling at every contact I have. <laughs> like, hey, hey, I want this. Yeah. Give me this. Yeah. <laughs> And especially because I, I don't know how I missed that. I didn't I didn't look at I did not know that it was shot by Dog Day Afternoon Cinematographer. But you know what? That absolutely totally. makes it make all the sense in the world. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that'll wrap it up for uh, Night of the Juggler there. We are going to be right back and we are going to be talking about Nighthawks. Nighthawks. 
one man can bring the world to its knees. And only one man can stop him. Universal Pictures presents Sylvester Stallone in Nighthawks, coming in April. All right, we are back, and we are talking Nighthawks, the 1981 American action thriller film directed by uh, Bruce Malmuth and starring uh, Sylvester Stallone, as well as uh, Billy D. Williams, and the one, the only, Rutger Hauer, who uh, we actually uh, did an episode about not too long ago after uh, his his passing, and which which kind of set us up a little bit for this one because this was, from what I understand, his American debut. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, really? It's, very cool. Yeah, his big which was very big which, which, yeah. which was very cool to see because his biggest before this had to have been Soldier of Orange with Paul Verhoeven. Okay, Amazing I believe film. sounds right. Yeah, because that was because that was the we we did Soldier of Orange, then we also did Flesh and Blood, which would have came out uh, a couple years just after right. Nighthawks, after he had already had some success. Do you think in, uh, obviously Blade Runner and Eureka, other other films? Do you think um, that like that work is what got him to be kind of like that villain kind of character? Just because like with Flesh and Blood, I do believe he's the hero, but that movie is so you know grimy and it's not like he's like a perfect hero well, do you know you what know? He, he 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 did blade runner before flesh and blood oh, is yeah. that? where he was sort of the sort of sympathetic uh villain by the end of that a little bit oh right 82 um, yeah so 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 he did nighthawks and then he did blade runner which would have only came out the next year yeah. that was 82 um, right, right. So he had he had quite the uh, that's the a one two punch right there double yeah. double debut here of starring up against Stallone and then Harrison Ford. Yeah, yeah. that's crazy. So they were really pushing him as like a a new face in uh, American genre cinema at this at this point. Um, and I I will say uh, I had a really interesting time with with Nighthawks. Because yeah, me too. You 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 can tell that like. There's there's some weird things happening in a little bit of the writing here where, uh, from what I understand, Jason, maybe correct me if I'm wrong here. This was supposed to be French Connection 3? This is the, the really? I, I, you know, I don't have independent confirmation of that, That's but that is the popular <laughs> sort of. Uh, trivia about about the movie is that yeah that this at one point you know now I will see, and I believe it I will say also like there was a time in like the mid nineties where like every action movie that came out you heard had been like Lethal Weapon three at one time or so you know what I mean like yeah you, yeah you yeah, kind of yeah. have to give those stories a grain of salt but it, it's it certainly is yes plausible that this that this you know that they were that Fox was looking to uh, to to return that franchise to New York and that this this was one of the scripts they were floating around it certainly has. The, that sort of flavor of the first French connection of the you know the the the, the New York international cops, terrorism right, or, exactly. or crime meets like sort of like the New York City streets exactly exactly yeah I would say that's definitely believable because uh, it was it's this is gonna sound insane I literally just watched the French Connection for the first time a couple of weeks ago <laughs> oh, wow and I and I and then and then I ended up watching this and I was and uh, I I still haven't seen the second one by Frankenheimer but everyone's been telling yeah. me that I need to see that yeah, too. That's good. But it, it definitely made something interesting here because as for, like, uh, a, a Stallone movie, I was quite surprised to see, I guess, like, like what, what I would call, like, New York urban terrorism mm-hmm. in, like, 1981. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel yeah. like that wasn't quite something that you saw on, on screen. At least not in American yeah, yeah. mainstream movies, no. 
Because I'm um, used to wow. like I've seen it now. We see it like uh, there's a, two big ones are like Die Hard and Cliffhanger, where it's like the the international terrorist comes over and, <laughs> and you know the, the the guy saves the day and all that. But like you know, 1981 is a very early time I think to to have that happen. In a film. Why well, Stallone? Stallone, I think, actually blames that on why people. I think uh, he thinks people didn't care for the film too much. I guess hmm. he thinks that uh, like it seemed really like far fetched of an idea that people didn't think that that was like th- something plausibly that could happen. I think it would have worked a little better because I, I heard that um, that like fifty minutes of this movie was cut out. So fifty, yeah, and that and. I, something like that i heard it was like a two i heard it was like a two and a half hour movie cut down to like an hour 40 and and it makes sense because there's just stuff in here that i'm like was there a period for okay for instance when he gets the plastic (laughs) surgery there's like no period of wait time or anything (laughs) like that it's just like he gets it and then and then next thing you know he's at customs and he's and he's in america and he's good to go and 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 i don't care like i can just kind of forgive that it's fine it's an action flick whatever but it does feel like there was more and i do feel that while i'm watching it you know yeah yeah i I definitely watched i didn't didn't know that there was stuff (laughs) i didn't know that there was 50 minutes cut but it, it definitely felt to me like there were scenes missing because uh like Rooker for example who is is quite good in a lot of the screen time that he's given he is a completely oh, yeah. inscrutable villain oh yeah which, which, which kind of yeah, makes the movie there's fun like to no watch motivation in way. <laughs> yeah well one of the, yeah, I will he, say this I he mean it's like a brief sentence near the end right, right where he's just like I am blowing shit up on behalf of the oppressed and I was like it all right, uh, this is a thing that's been established. Sure, man, for do sure. you think? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you never, the, when you hear those stories about, you know, oh, it was this, you also never know is that like the director's first assembly is that, you know, like is there exactly. sort of regular, but I, I, I did hear, and this sounds credible, the story goes that a lot of the cuts were, were Howard's scenes that Stallone demanded cut because he was stealing the picture from him. I totally buy oh that. Oh my God. Totally buy that. That's oh my God, 81. That's cr- it's, well, I didn't. That's so, <laughs> yeah. that's so fucking crazy because that that goes in perfectly into what we're going to be doing next week, which involves a little bit of some Steven Seagal action, <laughs> and that's exactly what Steven Seagal fucking did in Out for Justice. He cut all of Bill Forsyth's stuff because. Wow. Uh, as you could probably predict, Bill yeah. Forsyth was an absolute manic madman on that movie and completely upstaged anything Seagal thought he was doing. Oh, um, I love that. I really so this hope. Is just, this I is just really, a thing really with do action hope stars. That- <laughs> Yeah. So is that is that confirmed that Stallone did that, or is that one of those like, again? This uh, is just this is just scuttlebutt. Kind of you know this. Yeah. This is production rumor. This is you know after okay. the fact scuttlebutt. The only, whatever. The only reason I take a little concern with it is because with uh, with hard to, or not hard to kill out for justice when we talked about it. Uh, Steve, when we talked about Steven Seagal, one of the reasons that I couldn't really like love out for justice was because I found out that Seagal basically sabotaged what would have been a fantastic film. And it right. is a little disappointing to to hear that possibly Stallone did that as well. Cause I, I really like Stallone I do and, too. uh, and definitely a lot more than Seagal. And, um, <laughs> and I don't know. You just don't want to hear that. Right. You want to hear like, a an actor and a, a, someone that's producing something to just, uh, do the best for the project rather than for their own ego. Well, I, you know? it, it, it should be worth mentioning too, that, uh, if Stallone did do that, he has since gone on the record and said that like the longer version of this film that did exist is the one he wishes was out there. Interesting. Um, he, oh, okay. I, I, I remember so he has some couple, regrets maybe. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember reading a, uh, a, a, 
a, a brief thing while I was looking up this film that had to do with Stallone saying something along the lines of uh, that there was a lot of also action and some pretty intense violence that was cut from the film as mm-hmm. well that was cut uh, that the studio cut out of it. So it, it sounds oh, like a, okay. a combination of maybe he asked for some cuts and then the studio also did a bunch of cuts because yep. he he swears that again <laughs> we have no idea how how true it is it's just coming from Stallone but he swears that the finale of this film he intended to be like his taxi driver right. is what he says. Oh wow. <laughs> And and I what that to be fair to him, in the context can, of you, the film. Well, I mean, when we get there, we'll talk about it a little bit. But like, I actually do believe him on that one a little bit because mm-hmm. you can tell that they have trimmed down what was an overly violent scene oh, yeah. because Stallone shoots Rutger Hauer, oh, yeah. I think, twice in that scene when we finally get to it, which is an insane scene. Um, and yeah. the final bullet count on like Rutger Hauer's chest is like six and there's so much blood on the walls yeah. that you're like, how did that even get there? Yeah. No, supposedly there was like a <laughs> yeah, prosthetic that's, that's head that true. was like blown off or blown apart. Oh! Yeah. No. Oh, so they went with like, that's almost like alternate ending in a way just yeah. because I won't reveal the big thing, but yeah, but, uh, but just him kind of, you know, dangling from the the steps and he's he's got his body over the railing and stuff like that yeah uh yeah they they must have like if they did have the prosthetic head that blew up they must have went maybe we should make a safe ending <laughs> as well let's let's do the tv version <laughs> yeah yeah exactly we're we'll, yeah. we'll just have stallone sit by him and, and we're good <laughs> yeah but but for anyone who hasn't seen nighthawks like very loosely it is rooker hauer is a sort of like vague uh european terrorist uh i i I, maybe he's german uh but he's hanging out in the uk (laughs) and he kills a bunch of kids in a terrorist blast in the uk and his terrorism network is very upset with him because uh terrorists have codes obviously and they don't kill kids that's their code uh apparently uh so they're very upset with him (laughs) and then he decides to go to the united states in in which case they get a federal task force together called attack uh which apparently at one point was supposed to be a title for this movie um and they get uh sylvester stallone and billy d williams who are two sort of like uh street level new york city cops uh who go undercover and kind of know the neighborhood a little bit and sylvester stallone for some reason he just has a thing for tricking muggers uh in drag yeah they work decoy (laughs) Yeah, so so Sylvester Stallone is just really good at being a decoy. So he dresses up as a woman, and then a mugger comes up to steal the purse, and then he just starts beating the shit out of him with the purse, and then Billy D. Williams comes. I lost my mind when he just takes off the scarf hood and then he's got the big beard oh my god it's just it's one of the most uh, it's very Stallone's got his Serpico ridiculously going on yeah. Yeah, mountain man sure, beard, sure. mountain man beard, giant glasses. Stallone has a real look in this one. L E W K. Yeah, yeah. This is probably the last time he would have like intense facial hair mm-hmm. like this. Uh, but yeah, yeah I don't think I've ever seen Stallone, him look like this ever. Yeah, uh, watching Stallone chase street thugs in like an old woman's outfit to like groovy jazzy yeah. synth score, and like Stallone like trying to and like then he strangle kicks- him. Uh, and, and then at one point he out. like actually kicks the guy's ass with, with like with the dress. And I love that shot <laughs> of him dragging the knocked out thug 
uh, along the the concrete, the and he's in the dress, yeah. just dragging this thug. Yeah, yeah, the subway platform. while he's oh, while he's re- reciting it's, his Miranda rights. Yeah, it's a real seventies cop movie moment. Yeah, which, which I was gonna say. By and the I way, love how he, reading him. Go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say while he's reading the Miranda rights, there's there's this awesome shot of like the uh, the above ground subway like riding by him in this wide shot, and then it passes by and he's just dragging the dude's uh, like unconscious body, and he's going like, "You got the right to legal counsel. You got yeah. the right to remain silent. Yeah, something something blah 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 court of law." And then he finishes it by going, "And amen." <laughs> and amen. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And I did think it was gonna be a. Uh, a tell to kind of like, you know, the, the cliche in a way of, uh, the cop, it's like his religion, you know, the code or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. they don't go too far with it. Uh, maybe they did in the longer cut, but, um, but I do really enjoy the line. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I, I think that like, weirdly enough, because of, I mean, again, we don't know exactly how much was cut. Cause again, there is so many stories where people are like, so-and-so movie was three hours yeah. long. And I was like, every assembly cut is three hours long before you cut it into a two hour and 15 minute film. Um, but right, right. I will say that like, there is some sort of like weird things that feel like they're missing or are unexplained because the larger story, or maybe the story is just this absurd where two st- street cops, <laughs> Salone and Billy D get upgraded to like federal terror, terrorism task force. Mm-hmm. And they even are all like, the time. And they're like bored. They're, they're like, why they were like, dude, we, we would just rather like dress up as, as, as ladies and like Beat take down out of local thugs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Can I tell you my favorite part of that whole thing is yes. when Joe Spinell, Absolutely. As, as we mentioned, the patron saint of NYC Sleaze, as their angry captain, playing it yes. basically the same way he plays a serial killer in Maniac the previous year, says, <laughs> he, he, call, he, angry, he sort of pointedly, sneeringly calls Stallone, and this is a quote, I wrote it down, the gung-ho lone ranger of the street crime unit. <laughs> Even though he works with a partner who's oh, standing yeah. right next to him, yeah, 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 and also Ranger the partner means. is a completely unhinged at certain points. Like Matt, like uh, the guy at one point goes into that the the like drug apartment or whatever. Yeah, South and he Bronx, just by the way, everybody shoves South a dude Bronx. on the table. Oh, nice! And he just shoves a dude <laughs> on the table, puts the shotgun in his face, and just starts screaming at the dude. And so it's like uh, it, it is interesting that the that lo- the lieutenant has that line for Stallone. <laughs> yeah. Me- meanwhile, Stallone is just like rocking all these amazing like fits. Oh yeah. And he even has like people saying that he like looks very chic, and that uh, I think he says something along the lines of like he's got back from the Bronx, and the, the ex-wife I, says I, is, what were yeah, you the, cruising? Yeah, the, the ex-wife says what were you cruising? <laughs> yeah. Which, by the way, turns out to be an even more hilarious line because Joe Spinell obviously was in Cruising. We've talked about Cruising on the show. I fucking love Cruising, yeah. another amazing New York City yeah. uh, grime film, which is just both like the the cop uh, a ground level film like that, uh, mm-hmm. but very psychologically engaged, and then very operating obviously in the horror slasher realm right. as well. Right. And this film was also shot by James A. Contner. Uh, who shot that film. Nice. Well, and basically so, same era. Like, Cruising was out in 80, Night of the Juggler 80, Nighthawks 81. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, Very he, he basically pre- he probably shot have a Cruising nice club and then immediately this shot this film. Mm. Yes. Which is one of the best scenes in the film, Panic actually. at the Disco, actually, baby. Yes. I mean, <laughs> honestly, that, that scene... Because, like, I was going 
through some of the plot logistics of this and some of like well this again, was your first mistake <laughs> and then also going through some of the uh even some of like the characterization with with stallone and them and i was trying to figure out like what is going on with it? I, like, I don't understand what this terrorist is doing. I don't understand why these cops were selected to take down this terrorist who I don't understand. And then, <laughs> and like, this is what the movie is for like the first, probably like, you know, 20 minutes to half hour of the film. Right. And I was trying to figure out like, what the fuck is going on? Right. And then eventually I just kind of gave way a little bit to the vibes of the film. Right. And that, that is yeah. what uh, hit me. Uh, especially around the nightclub scene, because it seems like the one character arc that Stallone gets, which is a really fucking hilarious character arc, is if he can shoot somebody. If he can shoot, some- <laughs> that's it. It's it's literally like, dude. He, they're like, dude. You're you're a cop. You gotta kill a bitch. Like that's literally what yeah, they're saying yeah. to him. And he's being like, well, dude, I'm a cop, but I don't want to kill people, man. I don't like violence. I don't. And Stallone's just doing his thing, yeah. being like, I'm I'm a good guy. I don't I don't want to murder people. And they're like, well, we selected you for this unit because of your military record, where it says you killed a guy. And he's like, yeah, I didn't like killing that guy though. And it was just like a guy. Like I didn't really want to. And right. like this is the push and pull of yeah. the drama of the yeah. film. Is like, will Stallone fucking just shoot a guy? Yeah. And that scene where he goes into the nightclub you know it, it actually reminded me a little bit of uh the uh cobra scene where they start going around uh to all the different venues and just like showing pictures and asking around and stuff like that cobra turns it into like this oh, weird yeah. like stylized montage but again this film is kind of stuck in uh it, it as i mentioned at the top of the show it's still in that like 70s crime actioner style thing Mm -hmm. which again is more about sort of just being in the psychological state of their characters and the characterizations and there are small little gestures and a little bit of like incoherent qualities that get you closer to like what would become the bigger more like incoherent mm-hmm. 80s actioners that were on the horizon Absolutely. where like character as i wrote in my in my review when i was writing about the film i said that like the character was more about like there's a like a Mad Lib style plot. And they were like, character is really just like a strange detail that like creates a personality for this character, which in this case is Stallone's drag thing, yep. which I spent the rest of the movie trying to be yeah. like, why does that matter? Why? Like, why oh, is you'll find out. Buddy. Do? And I, we will say we fucking <laughs> found out why that matters. <laughs> yeah. Um, so like large Most parts of this just honestly experience. made like such little sense to me. And right. then that nightclub scene, he walks in, he spots Rooker Hauer and it's uh, it's the Rolling Stones. Uh, Brown Sugar is playing, yep. uh, and the 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 lighting and the mood, and again, uh, the guy who shot Cruising being in a nightclub once again while the Rolling Stones are playing. I love how Stallone much they, just uh, glaring they look like at Rooker. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like they're supposed to be kind of undercover, but there's this one shot that that stood out to me is it's just them standing beside each other and they're so stoic and just analyzing the entire room and everyone around them is just having a great time. Just coked it's just out so their obvious that they're not there yeah. for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the, the overactive movement and lighting of the nightclub and yeah. the smooth camera work and the music and Stallone just glaring, it just has a really killer mood. It, it actually reminded me of like, yeah. uh, it, it, like it was like a 70s rock version of like a Miami Vice moment totally. or something like that. Totally, mixed with and a little bit of like guys, yeah, uh, sure. looking for Mr. Goodbar almost. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> and though, and then Rooker spots them and they just glare at each other in like this, ah. in like this discotheque setting and Stallone 
is just the absolute worst fucking cop that there's ever been because like he's like i think that's the guy and instead of like trying to like formulate a plan where like like, they 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 try to capture him he just fucking stares at him and stares at him until ruker's like okay this guy's a cop and he just opens fire why are you staring at me bro oh god he just opens fire and kills a dude yeah it's just like why be undercover if that's how you're gonna play it Well, no, they had to get these guys who are so good at undercover and who know the city. Well, yeah, that's yeah, the thing. Yeah. That's that's <laughs> literally they say the reason that they picked them up is one for their military record right. where they killed someone, which, again, he clarifies that he, you know, he didn't like killing. Does someone. does not want to do. Well, yeah. And then and then, two, it was because they are the best undercover neighborhood cops that they know how to fit into the situation, uh, which we saw them do in the opening scene, even though he was dressed uh in an old lady's clothes, they 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 trick those guys. He doesn't even try to trick <laughs> and Ruker, and, and and we don't know even know why he's particularly upset because as of yet, I don't think he's actually done a terrorism in New York yet. Right. So like, there, there's no like personal animosity here of any kind. So it's this totally bizarre scene where Stallone is just really upset, and maybe there was stuff that was cut that would make that make more sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but like. Maybe. A, again there's just this weird vibe of like stallone he's so angry he wants to get this guy so bad that he just doesn't even try to be undercover initiates a shootout which apparently uh stallone has said was really cut down there was so much more like collateral damage oh. and death oh, that yeah, happened right, in right, that right. Scene. it was yeah. like a terminator scene uh or something like that. oh wow so it wasn't just that one person that gets shot no no he said when Power they originally shot it people. it was like a full-out massacre yeah yeah <laughs> Oh wow, that's crazy! And then it initiates Another, a uh, decent, chase uh, scene that goes all okay. the way to the subway, right? Yeah, yeah. And oh my god, I love the subway chase, and here's why. Okay, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> the, the 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 subway cars in that sequence. Okay, when you if you live in New York, there's a wonderful in Brooklyn. There's a transit museum where you can go, and they have it's like it's at a, 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 a station that's no longer in use, and so you can go down the subway level, and you can go down through the cars, and you can go on basically like a tour of the different cars through the different eras. Okay. Now, mm-hmm. of course, they didn't shoot the sequence on, like, an active subway car or whatever. They had to, like, make arrangements with the city and, you know, you, you get a dummy car, you know, whatever. They got, like, the 40s-era subway car for this. Like, this is, like, I mean, literally the one that they use <laughs> in the 1940s. Like, this is not, you know, these are not the subway cars in, like, Death Wish and Pelham 123, which are, like, the 70s ones. They're, like, accurate to the era. Like, this is an old-timey, like, bamboo seats, like... It is, I don't know who they pissed off in the MTA to, for them to send, yeah, send them over the 40s one. Like, it's so, it's absolutely, it really sticks out if you're a New Yorker, and I would imagine even more so in the time, watching this movie, that they are, like, in an antique subway car for this sequence. That's all I have. Okay, sorry. <laughs> well, even That's even uh, uh, some of like the the stunt work that they they do in there, where like they are riding oh, off yeah. the the end of it and stuff like that, like some that subway chase is like pretty mm-hmm. um, in intense, and some of the the camera work is really well done when they get down there. And then you have that confrontation where uh, Rooker grabs a hostage, and obviously you're you know. 
I, I know this almost just completely from movies is he's got a hostage. You don't take the shot. Yeah, take the you shot. just don't take it. Nope. Yeah. And, and, right. and Stallone doesn't take the shot because again, that's his arc is he's, uh, his arc is that he's actually like a, by the books cop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, who gets, yeah. who, who he's learns doing his to not be a, by the books cop. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's his arc. <laughs> and Billy D is yelling at him to fucking just take the, take shot, the shot with him holding Kill a hostage old lady, who cares? with a knife to her neck, like yeah. prepared to like slit her throat. Yeah. And then yeah. they continue. And it's the played like he should have too. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like it is a moral failing right. on Stallone's part I mean, that he did not shoot the hostage. Even later on, <laughs> even later on when to, the guy gets, uh, cause his, go ahead. The thing you have to keep in mind about almost all seventies cop movies that aren't Serpico is how many of them are basically fundamentally philosophically um, a response to the Miranda Supreme Court decision. Like so much of 70s cop cinema from like Dirty Harry explicitly, but like everything of that ilk is basically about how, well, because of the dirty liberals, now cops can't just shoot or can't just beat the shit out of everybody. And <laughs> yeah. it's uh, real criminals are getting away. They can't yeah. get their job and, done anymore. Yeah. And that, and frankly, that's a huge part of that, that long sequence at the beginning of the movie where they're just like, oh, look at these fancy lads doing real research and preparing and the bad guys are out here doing crimes. Nerds. Nerds. Like that's all laid into that. And so like that's why the, you know, dragging the unconscious guy saying the Miranda shot jumped out at me. It's like, oh, this is one of the 70s anti-Miranda movie, you know. And so that whole like can't take the shot, doesn't want to shoot people, that was war, you know. Uh, and so he has yeah. to basically come to the conclusion that being a cop in New York City in 1980, 81 is being at war. Like it's weird. There's a really similar arc for a cop character in James Glickenhouse is the executioner, which came out in 1980, where he also talks about how, like he explicitly says, like someone asked him, what was Vietnam like? So, well, it wasn't as hard as New York right now. It, like that's all, that is all <laughs> tying into what's happening in, in like a moment like that. And, and in that whole, as you said, really convoluted character arc for Stallone. Well, see, this is, this is so funny to me too, because I, I still haven't completed my full like dirty Harry watch mm-hmm. yet, but like, Magnum Force, for example, is like a movie where like Dirty Harry in the writing is forced to like reckon with that. I mean, like the the whole point. I I mean, I don't think that the movie like completely works because when we talked about Dirty Harry in the show, like the thing that we really liked about Dirty Harry was that it has like a really moral queasiness and complexity that like Don Siegel brought to like, yes, Dirty Harry fundamentally believes the gross things that he's doing is correct, but Siegel shoots it like it's a fucking horror sequence. So like that, that is really effective. And then Magnum Force came out in 73 as like an apology for that kind of film where Eastwood is now literally <laughs> taking down a bunch of of cops who have the gall to uh you know take extrajudicial justice and in such a gruesome fashion and he he literally gets a monologue in that film where he now understands that vigilante justice is bad and can go too far and that came out in 73 right so it's so interesting that like New York was having uh this this debate and making a movie still like this by like the the early eighties, but again, they would even take this still further with the cartoon stuff that Stallone would oh, eventually absolutely. do, because like that's still what Cobra was partially about too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh so for it's, sure, it, it's really interesting time in, in these kinds of films. But the thing that's just so interesting, I guess, is that in the seventies, like these kinds of movies were so character based, yep. and they were so based in like a, a sort of moral psychological quandary that the character has. Mm-hmm. And that this movie 
introduces one that is just like he's too much of a pussy. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which 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 I will I say, which I will it, say, absolutely pays off. Right. <laughs> oh yeah, I also find it odd that the thing that kind of motivates him to become the 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 necessary killer, I guess, is that it's his uh, it's his partner gets like sliced in the mouth or whatever. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> yeah, it's at he, the end of know, the subway he's, chase. He's yeah. talking to his partner, right? And he's talking to his partner, and he just. Stallone lets off this like completely like chaotic performance of like I'm gonna kill that motherfucker. You're fucking dead. You're dead. And he just keeps <laughs> repeating it over and over again, screaming at the top of his lungs. And I just found I, it funny. I, because I, I will it's, say, like, I get that. Is go ahead. Oh no! Oh, I was gonna, I was just gonna say like that part that you're talking about. That part really worked for me because he uh, uh, it has with Rooker cutting Billy D's face open. And I will say some of the violence is actually quite impactful in this. Like seeing that slice on his face Mm -hmm. is actually like it's it's pretty well done with some of the makeup and a lot of like the squib work. Like when when Rooker like blasts those guys away with like the the, the Uzi, the undercover cops or whatever. By the way, when when Stallone yells, you're fucking dead, you motherfucker. And he's yelling it over and over again. It's basically he's yelling it into like the void of the New York subway system as like Rooker jumps on the back of a cart and the shot is him completely disappearing into like the inky blackness being chased by like the echoing voice of Stallone screaming you're fucking dead and like that was one of those few moments where like the actual filmmaking even though again like the the character the moral uh quandary and the characterization i found kind of silly like the actual filmmaking there took that to the next level where i was like dude stallone is like raging out and this has taken on an almost like metaphysical quality at that point yeah definitely yeah that's what this movie is for me it's definitely the the direction and the way that the uh the characters kind of interact with the world because uh, like you said in, in the beginning a lot of it doesn't really make all that much sense and there isn't a ton of 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 like real real characterization it's it's um it's a little bit more style over substance but because of scenes like that like the you know him screaming you're gonna die into the void and and uh (laughs) leaving in the darkness and then the only thing that is odd once again about that scene is his that that is his motivation to become that killer and and the 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 reason is kind of it's pretty it's a pretty odd reason i find just because we've seen rutger do worse things than cut a guy's face and so for that <laughs> but not one of sly's friends not right exactly this time exactly. it's personal it's just it's so strange to me it's such a small <laughs> thing it, yeah yeah it's the personal aspect of it yep. i just found it very it, funny um and then they cut to that awesome shot of him just like I don't know if it's right away, but uh, when he's doing the target practice and he just takes out the head and there's like a huge <laughs> hole and, and, and they do this great close up of his face. Like he's just focused on on death now. Yeah. Um, those moments are great, but it's it's still balanced out with like uh, this this weird shit that doesn't quite make sense um but i do find well, and, 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 that so i do yeah like and i was gonna say weirdly enough i ended up grooving with it anyway just because it created this weird experience of like this is really fun and strange to watch and it's still like pretty well made mm-hmm. and also it's worth mentioning too that rutger because so much of his stuff is cut like none of his plans make like any sense. He doesn't seem like a particularly smart terrorist or like again you're not sure what his motivation is or like what he's actually trying to accomplish much of here. Um, 
and also he's b- both really bad at disguises and also he carries around just what I'm going to describe as a terrorism briefcase yes. just all the time. <laughs> he just he just he just walks around with like a briefcase filled with like grenades and explosives and weaponry and I'm like there's no reason he needs all this stuff. He doesn't even use right. any of it in the movie for the most part. He ends up I think leaving it behind at one yeah. point, which is how they end up catching up to him, which again, he just yeah, left he's his a terrorism man, briefcase apparently. behind. Yeah, because he wanted to sleep with the stewardess yes. or whatever. Yes. I was like, yeah, Dude, this is and the I worst love his line when he's like, I love his line when she's like, I'm a stewardess, and then he's like, Oh, I'm an international terrorist, <laughs> <laughs> just completely like nonchalant, and he plays it off like a joke. That was a, a great little moment. Yeah, but but, but we sh- we should get into the cable car uh, sequence, which which has oh, this is uh, the best. Yeah. Now, which which uh, Jason? This is you what elevates the movie for me, for sure. I was gonna say because uh, one thing we we haven't mentioned, but like this has uh, just as much as uh, Night of the Juggler. This has just as much uh, New York location mm-hmm. shooting that is just amazing. Yeah. and this is the this was like the standout bit of location shooting that really worked for me, um, because that that cable car where where he takes it hostage after he raids like a UN party mm-hmm. where he like kills a dude and kidnaps his wife. There, There is this awesome shot where Stallone is like looking down the escalator at the corpse of the body and like his re- Stallone's reflection is in like the two sides of the uh, escalator mm-hmm. like uh, metal there. Um, but when, when he gets on the cable car and this is like peak, like what the fuck is he doing? I don't understand right. what's going on. But then Rooker reveals this thing that's never been established which is that like he he is a quasi i guess like a good guy terrorist he thinks so he's like you got to get this fucking child <laughs> yeah. out of here i don't want to be seen as a bad guy so come and get this child but then he's really upset because he said to get the cops and they call he they clearly called the terrorism task force which had stallone just saying that he was going to yell and kill him so he sees that stallone is there <laughs> so he just straight out murders he's a woman as a threat and yeah. And throws her off the cable car, and you watch like this body just fall all the oh. way to the water. My God, it's one of Show the of coldest domination. shots I've ever yeah. seen because it's just like a like a rag doll or something, and and they <laughs> focus the entire time that the fall happens until the water <laughs> until she hits the water. It is completely on camera, and mm-hmm. it is a very cold shot. Yeah, the the uh, the Roosevelt Island tram, which is what they shot that on, is honestly I'm a little mm. surprised it hasn't been used in more movies. Like it's in this one, it's in the Raimi Spider Man, and you know maybe a couple of yep. others here and there. But it's like right. it's it's incredibly cinematic, and and again, just I'm yeah. <clears throat> I'm amazed it took. I, I I'm surprised that it has not been rolled out for more you know dog day afternoon style climaxes or for for action beats <laughs> right. or whatever yeah and it's a, it's a it's a good location and that yeah the seek that whole sort of back and forth of them glaring at each other you know from helicopter to tram and back and forth it's just like okay now it's we're, awesome yeah, it's good stuff yeah, and I mean the fact that they again they they got the the real location, they got the real helicopter there, and then later, um, for some again I don't know exactly why, but Rooker asks for a bus yep. to take all the hostages off, and I was like, okay, well why did you start the hostage situation here? Like he chose to start it there, right? So I was just this weird thing where then he's all of a sudden like, okay, well now I need a bus to get out of here. You need to bring it to me. But then they get the real bus involved, and then uh, they introduce his partner, who they end up playing a tape of Rooker shit talking her, which gets her really upset to betray him. 
And then uh, is is it Billy Deer Stallone who snipes her in the head, and the bullet goes right through her fucking head? Yeah, it's all getting a little convoluted by then. Yeah, yeah. But I will just say that, like again, like the the filmmaking of the actual action oh, itself yeah. and and, and the standoff here is like really really. Um, well done and the location shooting that they're doing and some of the stunts that they're doing too are really well done like the the bus when it flies off um in in into the water and then you just get kind of like stallone looking over at the bus sinking into the water a wide shot and then the helicopter like flying in the background um and it all leads to stallone being like okay this guy is serious business he's hurting other people now <laughs> like i really need to i really need to take him out yeah. and also they they go to his like uh his base where again, Rooker has written all these notes about all these things he plans on doing. (laughs) And he wrote down that he knows where Stallone lives or his ex-wife lives. And this gets us to the, one of the craziest fucking finale. Okay. Let me talk about this. Let me say one thing about this. (laughs) I don't know if you guys have brought up uh, terror in the aisles on the show before. No. Okay. For those who don't know, terror in the aisles was this, this, compilation movie that came out in 1984 um, that was basically like a feature-length supercut of great moments in horror. Um, it was sort of uh, with these, you know, interstitial and narration by Donald Pleasance and Nancy Allen, and it was a universal release. So they had like this huge, you know, library of universal horror to draw from, and they had some independents and some, you know, some films from other uh, studios as well, but really heavy on the Universal Library. For some reason, Nighthawks, I mean, the reason is that Nighthawks was a Universal release. Nighthawks is all over Terror in the Isles. There are tons of clips from Nighthawks in this movie that's about horror. And Nighthawks is not really a horror movie. It's an action cop movie. <laughs> but it really feels yeah. just like they were just like, well, I don't know. Let's, you know, this came out a couple of years ago. The kids like that. Let's throw in some, some, so, I saw Terror in the Isles like when I was a kid, like when it came out, years before I saw Nighthawks, which I saw for the first time like a year ago. So the entire ending sequence of Nighthawks, the whole thing where Rutger Hauer comes to the apartment is all, all in Terror in the Isles. Like I had seen all of this many times years before so when it got there i was like oh well i know how this ends so i i'm i am curious to hear how it plays uh for a first-time viewer who has not seen that sequence i absolutely lost my mind because (laughs) again uh it it has to be credit a a little bit to james a contner who shoots the shit out of it first of all because again one thing we really loved about cruising was its combination of crime and horror And this is like a a kind of tropey, I guess, thing at this point. But mostly I would say in sort of like serial killer novels, this was more tropey at this point. But like this is obviously a huge uh, moment that you would see at like the end of Red Dragon where like the killer comes back and now it's personal. He's got a he's got a vendetta against Will Graham. He's going to go to his house. And like that's the big finale you get there. So this is the big energy that this has. And they shoot it straight up like a slasher film where Rooker Hauer. They, they realize, holy shit, Rooker Hauer knows where my ex-wife lives. He's going to go kill my ex-wife. Rooker Hauer, it cuts to him breaking in. 
he he he's pulling a knife out of his back pocket. There's this deep red, like almost Argento mood lighting mm-hmm. happening there. He comes up into I love the kitchen. The, uh, pot reflection too. Yes, that pot yes, reflection this- shot where he looks all distorted and stuff. It's yeah. great. Yeah, there's this anamorphic widescreen shot of just Rukerhauer's face, like refracted against the uh, kitchen pottery and stuff like that as he's getting closer and closer. And the ex-wife is in the frame. The big blonde hair just washing dishes like you almost feel like this could be a, a, a sequence in like a De Palma film right. or something like that. And absolutely. Rukerhauer takes the knife into the air like he's about to stab. And Sylvester Stallone fucking spins around, reveals his huge beard, <laughs> takes the wig off. Rukerhauer is like, what the fuck is happening? Stallone Dude, just hit him Ruger's with the power of undercover drag. <laughs> Dude, Rutger's face is so good. He sells yeah. it so fucking yeah, he does. well. He's shocked. Like he's as shocked as we are. And and um and the I eyes love are too so how wide they, they the camera is pushing in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so good. And and they keep doing this like back and forth, like Stallone's eyes, <laughs> Rutger's eyes, Stallone's eyes, Rutger's eyes, until he finally shoots him. It's such a fucking I've never felt this way before, like watching a, a finale, honestly. It was so shocking and funny and it, it actually works somehow yeah. and I just it, they it, do it, set it, it up a wave of emotions <laughs> dude that opening shot man they they told you from the beginning mm-hmm. that this was gonna happen <laughs> <laughs> and it's like I I literally said I watched it six times I think I just re- kept rewinding <laughs> it because I couldn't believe it was real and and I just like and then I think I said to myself I'm like those motherfuckers got me twice with that because they <laughs> I mean it tricked me in the opening too right and so I was uh, well because they never yeah, bring it up impressed. they never bring it up ever again <laughs> right. that he that his undercover exactly. decoy specialty is dressing up like a woman and it's so insane when oh. you think about it that again Rooker shows up to the house and there's not a whole bunch of cops waiting for him literally they were just like what yep. if Stallone just goes back mm-hmm. and Stallone it takes even the time shows- to dress up like his ex-wife to hunt down a wig where did he get this wig from i mean i guess it's part of his, i would imagine his they thing. keep that probably in the car got a bunch yeah of them. yeah yeah <laughs> he's got a few outfits um, it's kind of like tootsie is, really is, it's kind of the tootsie element of nighthawks <laughs> that he's got a big closet full of ladies clothes uh and he kind of is into it probably i would say you know he wants to make sure he looks good he they looks should, authentic that would have been a I would, that would have been a hilarious one minute scene to have just to like mm-hmm. a, a little a little 10 second hint of what was to come. If we like opened a closet, we just see like three dresses <laughs> and a pile of wigs or something. Yeah, um, like, I think I think about but half what's interesting too is the way that they the shoot sweaters this. that he wears, you know. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny because the way that they shoot this is first he calls home. Right. And it shows the phone and, and no one answers. Right. And then it cuts to the wife, uh, and it's actually the wife. I, I rewound it to see if uh, it was actually Stallone, and I just never noticed it somehow. But it is the wife, um, and she does pull up into the into the house, and then without cutting or anything, it goes right to to uh, Rucker's character, and then he looks into the apartment. So it is still saying that I guess the wife was in the the building. Mm-hmm. Um, now yeah, I don't so, know so, exactly so Stallone how that had makes to like sense hide her or something. <laughs> Yeah, because it never and and you never get a scene where like she comes out afterwards and is like, "Did you get him?" or whatever the hell. It's not <laughs> necessary, but I found it funny that they do f- have her come in and then she's never like. I guess she's just hiding up in a room somewhere. Um, Forever. But, uh, but I do like the way that they shoot it because it's it's pretty it's pretty intelligently done. Yeah, I mean it's, it's actually genuinely kind of creepy as they're building up to it, and then it's 
amazingly funny. And also the fact that it, it's one of the few things in the movie that actually makes sense (laughs) is, is the most insane thing apart. It is, is, is that I was like, holy shit, (laughs) that actually is a thing that they set up with his character, which again is that thing of the eighties where they were like, here's a strange personality detail. That's going to become the most important thing of the movie. But then also when he shoots him, it is really bloody. He, he, the squib work as he shoots him once and then uh, he shoots him a second time, which launches him through the door and he falls down onto the steps and he's he's there. But there's so many connective tissue shots between those two shots that point to the fact that they definitely had an extended, oh, yeah. gorier, way bloodier version of this. Because between the first shot and the second shot, there is blood everywhere. All over the yeah. walls. Uh, Rukerhauer has like five shots in his chest at the very least, yeah. uh, even though he's only fired one bullet. Yeah. <laughs> Look, a Stallone bullet is really fucking powerful, dude. Like, it, he may right. just fire one bullet, but it makes five holes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and so, yeah, if, 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 if this honestly had like a taxi driver level, like head explosion, mm-hmm. crazy gory uh, factor, this would have taken it even a little bit of a step further because it would just be like, it would just make it so much more perverse that he would get into yeah. the killing in that way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and complete his arc. Cause he was like, yeah, mm-hmm. complete his arc of a dude who won't take the shot to a guy who will really take the shot. shot. He'll make sure that Someone's that shot lands. <laughs> a lot of shots. I will say this, and the other thing that I really like is the fact that like he lands on the on the steps, Shalom comes out, sits next to him, bang, roll credits. We're done. We're done. We don't need any Freeze frame. no goodbyes. We don't need to wrap anything. We don't need any No, we're done. We're done. That's it. We roll got credits. The terrorist. Out. Bye. Yep. <laughs> Like, they don't yeah, end I mean, movies I mean, like, like that, that anymore. They did in the 70s no, and 80s. No. Now we have to, like, do a bunch of fucking wrap-up, and we'd have to have, like, a scene yeah. where, like, the, you know, I the shitty it. captain congratulates him for a job well done. Who gives a shit? The guy's dead. Exactly. He's, on, he's dead on the steps. Stallone's journey is complete. <laughs> Roll credits. Done. Yep. Yeah. He never has to... Dress up as a woman again, although I'm sure he will because he loves to kick the ass of muggers. Well, because it worked. It's the one thing he does that works. It's the only thing he does as a cop that that actually gets the mission. That's a great point. It's his only plan, and it's the only one that'll pull through. Yeah, the, the, the only the only wrap up that would have worked is if they told him that he could have a whole division of like, <laughs> drag, like, cops. Drag, drag cops, drag cops, drag cops. That's the title. It's right there. Sequel drag cops. Right there waiting oh for my us. god, I would watch the shit out of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, pivoting uh, towards the reductive rating round and, and final statements here. <laughs> Honestly, I, I, I will say that my experience with this movie was that like appreciating a lot of the filmmaking and spending a lot of time being like, what the <laughs> fuck yeah. is going on? Absolutely. And I, I was kind of leaning towards a three for like large portions of the movie where I was like, yeah, this is pretty fun. And I, I really like a lot of the photography and I, I like a lot of the, the action and some of the mood and some of the way that they shoot these sequences, Alone's even though beard. I feel like there's a lot of nonsensical uh, writing that's kind of happening here that I couldn't make sense of. And then the ending happened. And yeah. uh, I was like, oh, no, this is a four. Uh, I'm, unfortunately, it's like an obligatory. It just needs to get the bump up because my reaction to the last scene just absolutely like melted my brain. And uh, so I, I, I will say it maybe gets a little bit of a lower four than than um, uh, Night of the Juggler. Yeah. Um, just because I think that that one like front to back has a mission yep. and it really nails it. And this one has a lot more inscrutable qualities mm-hmm. to it. But they are still fun. The performances are like, I mean, even just watching, you know, they advertised it as Rutger versus Stallone. 
I I still bought into that despite the fact that I think both of their characters are absolute <laughs> nonsense. Uh, and uh, yeah, drag cops. I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm down for that it. movie. Let's see it. So I'm about it. Yeah, I'm a I'm also <laughs> gonna give it a four. It is on the the lighter side as well. Uh, I kind of had the the same journey where I was. Uh, sticking with the three just because I enjoyed uh, the the look of the film, the way it was moving. I mean, the the opening shot with Stallone uh, becoming uh, being in drag and then kicking the ass of a couple muggers is just fantastic. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff in here. <laughs> it's just that that third act is what elevates it. It absolutely slaps. That that final act is just unbelievable. And then the the last two minutes, I guess, is uh, something I have truly never seen before. And uh, I was just I, I like yelled at my television like a couple times <laughs> and I, and I, once again, like I rewound that thing. I think I watched it 10 times. Like it was just over. In fact, I might go watch it again, just the ending, uh, when, when this, when this wraps up because it's just so insane. It's one of my favorite endings that we've seen on the show. Well, and, 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 and I, I will say like, it's such a unique experience to see something that's so one foot in like the seventies era yeah. that uh Night of the Juggler kind of like was was riding the tail ends of of like seventies grimy character pieces on the street with these characters who, you know, usually they are layered with psychology and, you know, so like like it definitely it feels like it's sort of one of those movies. Yeah. But then it throws in like the shit that you would see in something like later like Cobra where it's like what the fuck is this? Are these villains? Yeah, they're just what cartoon the hell? Characters, yeah. He's 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 cutting a pizza. Why is he cutting a pizza? I don't understand. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so so like this movie has like this weird thing where almost those things almost hit you even harder because they're so strange and they don't belong in like a seventies movie like the way that this is shot and and seems like. Yeah, it truly is like a a seventies film that slowly turns into an eighties film. Yep. It's, it's very strange and uh and I love I really enjoyed it. Um. It's it's very one awesome of those very capsule. weird four star movies though because it's like I can't justify any of the pretty weak <laughs> characterization and how messy the plotting is and stuff but it's like I don't give a shit I just have a blast with this and uh, and yeah it's it was a, a wild ride I'll tell you that <laughs> <laughs> all right well solid three from me because as I mentioned I had already seen the ending so I didn't have this experience of of that yeah, yeah. <laughs> of the ending turning on you I I. I had inexplicably had it spoiled by a completely unrelated movie that I saw several decades earlier. Um, but I, again, I appreciate, you know, as, as a New York movie, I think there's a lot of great stuff in it. It's beautifully photographed. The style of it is a lot of fun. The, uh, the, the, the relationship I think between, um, Stallone and Billy D. Williams, I think is, is a lot of fun because, and this is where the main link that I see to it being to a possible French Connection sequel is like in the seventies, like cop movies, like the cops, the partners like liked each other and like looked out for each other and cared about each other. And then like the sort of uh, mismatched uh, opposites attract partner thing was an eighties cop movie device mostly. So I like the byplay that we get between the two of them. Um, but yeah, it's you know it it doesn't make any sense. It falls apart all over the place. There's you know it's <laughs> the characters are nonsensical, et cetera, et cetera. But you know it is a fun ride. It is fun to watch. Um, and I will also say uh, it's worth seeking out Terror in the Isles if you get a chance to see that. Um, for really? a long time, yeah. you couldn't see it because uh, it hadn't been licensed for DVD or whatever. They ended up getting around that by it's a bonus feature on Universal's Halloween Two Blu-ray. 
Um, that's mm. just like a whole other movie buried in the bonus features. It's this 90 minute super cut of, or, you know, it's like sort of different movies cut together in kind of strange and unusual ways and weird juxtapositions, but also like introduced me to a lot of movies I ended up tracking down and so forth and so on. Again, it's an oddity and there's a lot of Nighthawks in it for no good reason. <laughs> insane they had to throw that ending they were yeah. so mind blown they're just <laughs> yeah, like this yeah, yeah. is going in my movie yeah, yeah yeah we're using this as many times as we can <laughs> all right well that'll wrap it up for nighthawks uh 1981 there that was uh nighthawks as well as night of the juggler from 1982 uh very underrated uh new york city grind movies coming out at the tail end of the uh trend of of, of 70s films and sort of launching us into the 80s thanks uh jason so much for bringing these uh, films yes, on you. with you if you've uh, got anything to plug this is where we uh, usually let you do that <laughs> I mean I write freelance for, for New York Times for Vulture when I can uh, Crooked Marquee is the, the, the movie site small site that I currently edit uh, but if you want to see my stuff just follow me on Twitter it's Jason Dash Bailey with the dash spelled out uh, I plug everything there uh, mercilessly and the book that these were researched for is called uh, Fun City Cinema, New York City, and the Movies That Made It. Uh, it comes out next year from Abrams, and it's a 100-year history awesome. of, of both New York City and New York City filmmaking and how the movies of each era uh, reflect what was happening in the city politically and culturally and historically. I spent three years on it. I watched over 300 movies for it. Um, <laughs> it's an insane book that I'm really, really proud of. Um, and I have four previous books also they're all available on Amazon so there you go there's my plugs amazing Beautiful. well I will absolutely be uh, picking up that book whenever it comes out because I'm very stoked and I always I always like uh, people giving me small time recommendations of very specific niche yeah. trends and stuff <laughs> oh, yeah. like that oh yeah that's so my favorite part I'm of the show I'm <laughs> very 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 down for that um, for our listeners, we're going to be back in uh, one week's time with an episode uh, sort of bouncing off of this a little bit because uh, <laughs> we I, sort of sort of <laughs> we have been meaning for a while to at some point hit uh, Steven Seagal. We were going to get him there at one point and it made sense because um, Jason brought on Nighthawks, which was directed by Bruce uh, Malmuth, uh, who happened to direct the second Steven Seagal feature and one of his uh, most popular features, Hard to Kill. Yeah. So we are going to be talking about uh, Hard to Kill uh, as well as Out for Justice, which was directed by John Flynn and uh, does have a little bit of... It has some new some New York location work in it, but from what I understand, they also partially shot it in L.A. Oh, because I didn't Steven even know Seagal that. just would not show up to work ever, and uh, <laughs> they what just kept running out of time. Bag, Everything you hear, just and, a dream to work with. Really, all yeah. the stories just just sounds like a uh, just a joy to be on set with. Oh my god! Yeah, and and but but John Flynn, obviously the director of of Rolling Thunder, and I think Jamie and I are going to make make the case that like there is an excellent version of Out for Justice that would exist if Steven Seagal <laughs> wasn't the worst producer on the planet. Oh, absolutely! Uh, I I almost love Out for Justice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, talk about like uh, just really blunt, nasty right. direction yeah, with so like mean. body mutilations thrown into a Steven Seagal action. It almost doesn't make sense 
that like Steven Seagal is like, you know, throwing around like random karate chops. <laughs> Meanwhile, like people's teeth are getting knocked out, hands getting cleaved off. It's a bizarre. Legs getting adventure. shotgunned off. It's a really strange experience of a movie, but we had a great time uh, talking about it. And obviously both films are also connected to our upcoming uh, screening on May 30th online that we're going to do with the $10 patrons of Stone Cold. Um, both because... Uh, Hard to Kill was supposed to be directed by Craig R. Baxley before he turned it down to let Malmuth do it uh, because uh, Baxley wouldn't work with Steven Seagal. He had already heard the stories and was like, not a fucking chance. He's like, I'm a, I, he was like, I'm a stunt guy and Steven Seagal wants to choreograph his own action stuff and I just wouldn't be able to work with that. So instead he directed uh, Stone Cold, which by the way, I believe was also uh, directed by Malmuth at one point. But uh, he got fired off of directing it uh, within a couple days of starting <laughs> shooting trade. that one. Yeah. So just some crazy connections there. And also, Out for Justice has the excellent William Forsyth in it doing an, a, a completely different movie than what Seagal is in yeah. about, like, the history of sort of, like, drugs and violence in a small Brooklyn neighborhood. Nice. Totally fucking – it almost feels like it should be a Scorsese or a Spike Lee thing uh, that he's in. And yeah. uh, Bill Forsyth also in Stone Cold as a biker alongside Lance Henriksen. Amazing. So, Jamie, you will be very excited to see him. <laughs> I am very excited. He was the best part of Out for Justice. So, stoked. Uh, and in, in two weeks' time, we have the free episode coming up. Normally by now I'd be announcing the films, and hopefully when this uh, <laughs> this podcast goes up I will be announcing those films. <laughs> but uh, we are currently – uh, still scheduling with a couple different people. And uh, we have a lot of, I think we're actually all the way scheduled up until August. We just have people fighting over this particular slot. So yeah. <laughs> we we will, we will let you know. Hopefully when you're listening to this, you will see what next week's movies are in the description. I am hoping. Yeah. Uh, but right now I can't say. Uh, but that'll wrap it up for this week's show. Uh, thanks so much as always for listening, guys. And keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy, guys. <laughs>